0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, on, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Rick Thorpe from Extreme Zero Waste, And we had a really fascinating discussion about what he's doing today, but also about some of his work earlier on the Chatham Islands saving the Black Robins. And he went out there for nine summers in a row. So it was really interesting to hear his story. And a big thanks to Craig Fisher for putting us in touch. If you enjoy this, then check out some of the more than 250 other episodes in the back catalog. And if you're listening to a podcasting app, then why not hit subscribe? Now let's get into this interview with Rick. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Rick Thorpe, who's the innovation manager at Extreme Zero Waste. Thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, kia ora. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thanks for the invite.
0: Yeah, no worries. I'm really glad to have you on the show. Um, I've been checking out some of your work and Craig Fisher, one of our mutual um, friends, recommended you. And so anyone that Craig recommends, I always try and get them on because I know he has a really good sense of people doing some good work. Um, so, Rick, what we'll do is um, find out about what you're doing today, but before we do that, I'd like to find out about people's backgrounds and histories, and in your case, if we could go back in time and tell us a bit about your childhood, and even like when you were four or five years old, where were you living, and
1: what was life like for you? That's that's a lot of memories, i <laughs> got 60 years of those, but yeah, I, I did have a pretty interesting background, my father was actually in the military, so we moved every two years, and Lived in in places like Malaysia and England, um, Australia, Fiji, and a few different um, places in within New Zealand as well, Wai'udu and Rotorua and Wellington. So moving around all the time, you know, it's a it's a different sort of a life. Um, maybe you miss out on some of those long term connections to place and people, um, but it also gave me a wonderful opportunity to live um, within other people's cultures and, um, you know, understands kind of the size of the planet and, and, um, the diversity which we have. Um, so yeah. And, you know, reflection, I think it was, it was a, a pretty amazing, um, childhood.
0: So, so what were some of those first memories, which countries were you in then?
1: Yeah, well, I guess, um, you know, my first memories would have been in Malaysia and, and um, we, we had a, a Gibbon Ape, um, which actually lived um, with the family. It um, lived out actually outside um, in, a, in, a, in the tree hut, um, but it had chosen our family um, to live with. It was actually orphaned um, from the um, local rubber plantation. And, and um, so um, to be on my tricycle and um, being driven around by um, this Gibbon Ape who sat on the handlebars um, with its long arms it would have one, one arm on top of my head and it would just turn my head in the direction that it went. Um, so I, all I really was was, um, power, and, um, but it was, um, yeah, amazing, amazing growing up, um, with, with such an animal. And I guess, um, that was one of my first, um, linkages through to the environment and my passion for, um, for the environment.
0: Oh, that's pretty unusual. Um, as a first encounter, I guess. I I can't think of anybody I've ever met who had that experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And as I say, you know, um, the, the gibbon was very much um, in charge. And so, you know, that was that was a, a different day's worth of activities, I would say, um, you know, um, especially compared to um, the other kids in the block, you know.
0: That's really interesting to me, considering what you do today as well, you know, thinking about the environment and things. Do you think you can... To what extent do you think you can trace back to some of those early memories and early, um, I guess, exposure to the natural world in such a unique way? Yeah,
1: I think moving around different cultures, I really did um, bond with the environment. The environment was um, my kind of um, safe and happy place. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it became a, um, a very significant part of my life. Um, I moved to Fiji and in my mid-teens, and um, completed schooling and went to university there into marine biology. And and yeah, my passion for for the marine environment, for for nature was you know sort of um, um, you know I could focus on that. And then when I I came back um, when I was 18 years old, I sailed back from Fiji down to Wellington. Um, and for an interview and um, got a job with the New Zealand Wildlife Service, mm. did four-year apprenticeship and became a wildlife ranger and then uh, um, so that, that was absorbed into the Department of Conservation. Mm. So, yeah, I really enjoyed, um, you know, kind of giving back, you know, to an environment that had always um, cared for me. Yeah, and, and, you know, yeah, I super enjoyed it and Although my initial focus was on the marine environment, you know, it sort of um, changed to the terrestrial environment in New Zealand and work on endangered species um, like the black robin and kakapo, takahi.
0: Well, I'd love to get into that because that does fascinate me. And, and I personally have always loved the little robins. Um, down here near where we live, um, there's a lake called Lake Daniels. And if you go walking in there, these little black robins will, you know, they're just everywhere. It's really an amazing Amazing bird, I think they're so beautiful. But before we talk about that, um, just two things I'm curious about. The first one is the your sense of identity as a New Zealander, as someone who was moving around all these different countries, was that strong for you? Was it stronger being away, do you think? Or yeah, how did that, what, what was your sense of nationality moving so often?
1: Yeah. Interesting question. And um, I, you know, I think I could have stayed in Fiji and um, it really, you know, it's, it had everything I I ever wanted, Um, you know, adventure and connection and um, an amazing climate and, um, and the people were just incredible. I learned so much um, in Fiji. Um, But I, yeah, I guess, um, I guess that question of, you know, where, when you live overseas and you know yourself you've lived in many countries um, and people do ask you that you know where where are you from and um so yeah always proud to be um from aotearoa from new zealand mm-hmm. and you know i guess um you know we we kind of hit the news you know with whether it be um to, um, to do with rugby or you know um so more recently i guess um with um politics um, but yeah, I, I liked um, the connection to this um, um, largest of the Pacific islands. You know, way back, way down in the south of um, of the Pacific, and so um, not really any um, connection to any major um, other country. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, it gave me a strong um, a strong sense of connection and the, the fact that um, not many people really knew um, where the hell it was.
0: Right. No, it's really curious to me, people who've lived in multiple countries, particularly as a child, you know, where do they end up feeling most at home, I guess, the Turanga Wai you know, like, where are you, where's your sense of identity come from? That connection point, though, I'm, I'm also curious, just with nature, what is it about nature that you felt a connection with? Like, how did you get that connection?
1: Yeah, as I say, I, you know, living in some countries, you know, where um, language, um, you know, perhaps was a barrier or culturally, you know, I mean, moving every two years, it, it doesn't give you long to kind of assimilate into a new culture. And, and so I think um, um, nature always was my go-to, you know, it was the place um, where I could be and um, be happy, yeah, yeah, a strong um strong trust i guess um you know i felt um you know and and i guess at 18 years old sailing across the pacific you know i felt um you know totally safe there it wasn't wasn't as much of a personal adventure um i think you know um probably was even greater for my parents you know to say you know go for it
0: right so what do you feel i guess what i'm getting at is what is it that what do you feel when you're in nature? Like describe your 18 year old self out on the ocean. How, what's your relationship with the elements and the wind and the rain and the water and the animals and things. How, yeah. how do you feel about yourself
1: in, in nature? Yeah. A, a, a total calmness. Um, and, um, but kind of on top of my game as well. It's, um, it's being aware of all my senses um, so, you know, when I worked on a Black Robin project, um, I was there for um, nine summers. And um, so, you know, I was able to understand um, um, Black Robin, um, their language. You know, I, I um, uh, you know it might sound a bit weird, but, um, you know, they use a, a tonal language. Um, so they have very, very few different types of calls, but lots of different tones. And after um, spending um, nine summers um, looking after them, especially when they were down to only five individuals, you know, I became, um, um, yeah, I could understand, um, you know, what they what they were up to um, all through the day. And I think it's just that continual, um, w- you know, working on those sensors um, so that you can see the patterns of the waves on the water or you can t- um, pick up um, the, um, information from the birds, and it still happens today on, on our little permaculture organic farm here in Raglan. You know, the minor birds are always telling me where the cats are, or the dogs are, or if there's people coming up the driveway. You know, there's, um, you know, I, I can use my senses, um, you know, which I've accumulated over all of that time from that um, connection to nature.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's really great. That's exactly what I was wondering about because I think in our modern society too often, and I'm guilty of this as well, we we substitute in the screen for actually getting out into nature itself. So we might watch a documentary about nature or we might watch a movie, which is set in nature, but actually how often do we kind of separate ourselves from our screens and actually go for a walk and sit beneath a tree and, just be i think that's a something that we are um losing connection
1: with yeah 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 well i was very lucky to have those unique opportunities you know who would pay you these days to spend you know nine summers um in the forest watching you know a particular species so very unique opportunity yeah Um, but it's still yeah very very significant even when i'm working in the office, um, the window still open, and I'm still actually listening to the birds. Mm.
0: So, what years was that project? Were you, yeah, how old were you, and what when did that happen? Was that yeah. soon
1: after returning, or that's right? Um, so, I started um, with the Wildlife Service at about um, year 19, 1920 and um, and worked um, yeah throughout Fjordlands, um, offshore islands, um, down in the sub-Antarctic. And I worked for, um, we would often do projects overseas. So I worked to Mauritius, um, the Middle East, um, in Jordan, Kuwait, um, and yeah, a number of other Pacific islands. Um, and later um, myself and some um, my amazing partner, um, Liz, who's a botanist. Um, So, you know, a a shared um, love of the environment. And we bought this um, 15 acre property here in Raglan and then um, did a permaculture design, planted all of our shelter trees because it was a a project about restoring um, a piece of um, really thrashed um, dairy farm and into a a kind of a um, tree oasis. Um, but we needed to plant that um, shelter, uh, which we did. And then we went up and back up into the Pacific two years in Fiji and a year in the Cook Islands while our tree, shelter trees grew and, um, and then returned home um, to develop the farm. So, yeah, connection to the Pacific has been really strong.
0: So let's, let's talk about that a little bit in terms of permaculture. Um, can you just explain to us exactly what that is? Because not everybody listening will have come across that. Um, And, yeah, tell us a little bit more about what your thinking was in in getting involved in that.
1: Kind of permaculture is a movement um, started in Australia, um, Bill Mollison and um, Holgrim. And it was to describe a system that was, you know, sort of beyond um, what they had in terms of agricultural systems. It was to try and um, produce a sustainable agricultural system. But then I think, um, especially with Holgram it, it turned into more than that. It was more about um, a, a permanence in terms of human in the landscape and the culture and looking for um, multiple generations into the future. So um, the, the um, ethics um, of permaculture is earth care, people care and fair share and, you know, nice little um, um, rhyming. Um, but it's 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 really about, and fair share is, you know, one about um, kind of greed, you know, and um, realisation that everything is finite and that we've really hit peak everything. And it's most necessary for us to um, consider, you know, what would be a fair share. And it also kind of puts um, humans in that, um, domain of being part of nature and that we share this planet with all, all other living species and so it's a fair share in terms of you know what um, how many resources and the and the amount of landscape that we need to modify to um, cope with our existence mm. um, and so yeah permaculture i think probably for the first you know since it was sort of developed in the 80s um, for the first 20 years it was probably about gardening and about, you know, being um, sort of relaxing and not being so uptight and having everything in straight rows and thinking about companion planting and, um, you know, um, um, vertical stacking. Um, so, you know, looking at a, a, at a forest, and I guess this would be one of my favourite examples, is a, a forest, you know, which would have emergent trees and canopies and sub-canopies and the forest floor. Mm-hmm. You can actually... Um, take that approach, um, nature's approach um, to a to a system, and you can develop it, but just using fruits and nut trees. And so our food forest here in Ragland is um, our emergence, are avocados, our canopy is um, macadamia nuts and um, white sapotes, and, and then our sub canopy is Fijoas and Tahitian lime and um, and then chirimoyas, and now um, ground coverers, pepinos, and um, and Jerusalem artichokes. You know, so we've we've taken the concept um, that nature has of uh, of a fully integrated forest with humidity and natural systems, and mm-hmm. and um, just modified it um, the species so that um, ourselves as well as other um, animals have um, opportunity to eat.
0: That's great. Yeah, I've, I've often, it, it actually has come up on the show quite a lot, because this, this will be about episode 253 or so. Um, so I've spoken with a number of people who've been involved in similar things. So down here in Christchurch, we have the Otakoro Orchard, where they're going and taking some of the red zones land in Central City Christchurch and planting, instead of planting sort of trees, just, you know, not just trees, but they're planting um you know, apples, apricots, you know, all these producing trees, I guess, so that the members of the community can then come in and, and be part of the that that little ecosystem as well. That nine seasons that you spent with the um, the Black Robins, can you just tell us a little bit more about that in terms of, I imagine if you said there were five left in that community, I think, you, you would have gotten to know them as individuals, you know, like more than the way I would see it is there's a little bird there, but it sounds like you got to know a bit of their characters and and who they were. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When there was, I think 1981, yeah, there was only five birds. Now there's about 250 or so. And, you know, they're kind of of out of danger, still very much threatened, you know, and some need another population. Um, but it was yeah, it was amazing to spend so much time with those individuals. As you say, there were two females and three males, and one female was she never produced um, any offspring, um, but she was an amazing auntie. And um, through a bit of um, manipulation of the nests, we could actually put plastic eggs in there and then move the uh, real robin eggs from the other. Um, female across to her so that she could raise them on her own, so we could start to um, increase the productivity of the robins um, just through that um, gentle nest um, manipulation. We also used um, another um, bird called the Chatham Island tomtip and um, kind of similar size and um, more importantly a similar temperature um, for and some um, length of incubation for the eggs. And so we could use those as surrogate parents um, as well. But there were problems in that you couldn't let the tomtits leave the nest. Sorry, the black robins leave the nest of the tomtit. Otherwise, they um, took on the identity of a tomtit for the rest of their life. Mm. And that was a really interesting point for me because a, a, um, a black robin would form its identity in the last two days before it left the nest that was the time, and if you ensured that it came back to a black robin nest, then it would uh, be a black robin for the rest of its life. If it was in a tomtit nest, then it would take up the identity of a tomtit. So intriguing, you know, that um, all of that identity would be formed at that kind of critical age. And it made me reflect, you know, on, on humans and, you know, other things, you know, when we were kind of ready to leave the, um, you know, the family home um, you know what? What was the what was the identity that we took with us? Mm. Um, but yeah, living down on the Chathams you know, it was a pretty pretty rough place. And um, and uh, um, I remember one time, you know, then um, where all of our equipment that we had taken over in the winter had actually been stolen, and um, and um, and so there was nothing there. We we just had a couple of um, sheets of tin um, to be able to make a bit of a shelter and. In those days, it was kind of radio contact um, back with um, base in Wellington, and it took them another six weeks, you know, to sort of get a fishing boat with some gear um, down to us. But of all of the places in the world to be marooned, um, you know, I think I'd put on weight. Um, uh, you know, it was such a, um, a wonderful place um, to be snorkelling in those waters and um, just with the bountiful amounts of um, seafood um, and a limited amount of, of greens as well with um, um, the New Zealand um, spinach and um, supplejack vines and, um, and um, lots of different seaweeds. Um, so really we were um, catered um, for very well and, and um, enjoyed the experience. Um, um, but, you know, it's, yeah, um, a pretty isolated um, part of New Zealand, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. Wow. It sounds like quite an experience. And what a legacy, though, now to be able to look at those 250 birds and, and I guess remember how many generations ago was that then? Their their great 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 great
1: grandmother? Or- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, in 1980. So, um, yeah, do the maths each year. Um, and yeah, the, the, the matriarch that um, um, produced really all of the offspring um, was called Old Blue, um, which just happened to be the color of the band on her leg, you know, at that time. Um, but, you know, the average age uh, probably for a robin is six to eight years, and she probably lived for 12. And um, so, you know, there were some remarkable things, you know, maybe she felt the need um, that, you know, to be the, the long-term survivor of the species and um, the one, you know, so we, we just assisted her. And it was amazing to find, you know, that she lived through each winter and would be there again in the next season pumping out the eggs
0: wow that's amazing i think there's a children's book about um old blue isn't there because i think my kids have read that at primary school and it's just an amazing story we'll put a link to some of these things that we're talking about because you know to be the last the last female of a species and to continue to produce eggs like that it's just yeah it's an amazing it needs needs a movie made
1: (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, there's some pretty um, dry documentaries on it, but yeah, it would be good to have something. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's similar stories as well from Ori um, you know, on the Chatham Islands as well. You know, they um, suffered, um, you know, and um, terrible um, atrocities in the, in the past and um, lost um, a lot of their people and a lot of their lands and only recently have um, regained um, some of that. Mm. You know, so there's, yeah, some stories um, in our country's past, you know, that um, really, really get heard. um, But a a very important part.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, so it sounds like there's a theme coming through in your life, which naturally echoes what you're doing today. (laughs) Um, Can you just talk us through the next few years and when you started getting involved in zero waste?
1: Sure. Yeah. When some, so Liz, Liz, my beautiful partner, and I, when we came back um, to Ragland, and um, we um, um, Zach, our son, was um, born here, and he came back up into the Pacific with us. And so we were pregnant in the Cook Islands with our daughter, Pania. And um, so we returned, you know, to have our, have our family on our permaculture lands and, and participate in our little community of Ragland. And coming home, um, you know, it was was, um, 21 years ago. Things were pretty tough economically for our community. Um, There wasn't a lot on offer. All of our school kids were leaving town, heading into Hamilton at least, if not further. Many of them um, not really ever coming home or very late in their lives to be on the Pai Pai again um, in our our community. And, And so we had some unemployment, no training opportunities no real new industry for for um for our rangatahi and um, and we had this massive waste problem um it was an unlined landfill which leached directly into the ocean um over the cockle beds where our manuhiri came um for um, collecting shellfish and um underneath the bridge where all of our kids bombed off the bridge um through the summer so this kind of blind connection between um, the environment and waste, and it was um, after working in the Pacific, you know, it was a very humbling um, experience. And even though we were working for a worldwide fund for nature and supposed to be helping with the environment, it was um, really um, for Liz and myself our personal journey was in quite at the opposite. We were we were um, amazed. We were. Um experience you know cultures that have been in the Pacific for five six thousand years with no known extinctions you know it was such a humbling experience um to learn from the pacific people and so we came home with a real feel for this kind of integration of um of social and cultural and economic and environment, and really teasing anything apart was you know a loss and and so um, one of the first things we did was go down to the Marae to say, look, we've got these skills and we'd love to help out. At that time, Ragland Harbour, the, the fishing in the harbour was probably the worst fishing in New Zealand, an average of 18 hours to catch fish. And so offered, um, a, you know, said, look, we've got some experience in marine biology. We'd love to help um, improve the fishery. And, um, and that offer was accepted. And I was given a task um, by um, Eva Rickard. And um, so she said, okay, the first job you need to do is go up the hill and close the landfill, recycle everything you can and stop the leachate from coming into the harbour. And it probably wasn't quite the job that um, I was expecting. Um, You know, swanning around an inflatable, um, doing marine biology type activity was probably more what I had in mind. Um, but, But, you know, it was and and the more we thought about it, um, the more we saw waste as a vehicle, waste as an opportunity to actually take the the negative of waste and turn it into multiple positive benefits and so that's exactly what we did. We took the most unemployable people in town and, um, and we um, taught literacy and numeracy, and we um, you know spent. A considerable amount of time um, helping to re- redevelop those people, who and, and some of them are still with us 20 years later. But that was probably the most beautiful part of you know the journey. Um, and the side that I really loved was actually working you know with people in our community who um, you know had really been um, bypassed by the education um, service that we offer them. And um, and were um, wonderful people and had so much to offer the community, but had just been sort of pushed pushed aside and not given another opportunity. So it was almost you know there was a kind of a parallel in the recycling and the reuse, you know, around. Actually, people need a new opportunity as well. Mm. So that became very much um, a tenant um, of of the project. Um, so yeah, so. Um, we started and we thought we would probably spend you know, a few years setting up um, extreme zero waste in the recycling program. Um, but the more we got into it, the more we um, became passionate for this integration of um, social, cultural, environmental and economic activity. Mm. So you know, here we are 20 years later and what we used to bury in the ground now provides 42 sustainable positions about twenty seven FTEs and we the community provides us with about eight hundred thousand dollars in terms of contracts through our local council, but we turn that into one point six million dollars of of investment in our local community mm. in wages and contracts and spending in local shops. So not only does the community get all of the services, probably at a much, much higher level because you know, we we care and we'll do that extra distance, Um, but we double every dollar they give us in local expenditure. Mm. So it's the sort of community enterprise approach, you know, being geographically based in Raglan, focused on Raglan, and thinking about, um, yeah, fixing up our past issues around waste, but also thinking about multiple generations into the future about where we need to go, you know, when zero waste is a reality and we have no um, further need for extreme. Yeah.
0: Well, it sounds like it's a great example of integrating not just a business, but also benefiting the environment as well as the people. And I love that principle that it's not just about reuse or recycling of the, the, the product or the waste. It's also about looking at people with the same lens and saying, actually, you know, here's another chance. Here's a, a something where you can be productive and add value.
1: Yeah, That's well, really great. Yeah.
0: And, and what's been the reception in terms of, because I imagine this is something that could be done elsewhere in the country. Um, have you found that other places have been intrigued or, or want to learn from you? And, and what's, what shape has that been? And if people are interested in learning more, how could they go about doing that?
1: Yeah, well, you know, we met to to um, Ashburton, Kaikoura and Kaitaia, who had a similar system when we first began. Those, those three places had a, a kind of a community recycle centre mm-hmm. established. And um, so we, we borrowed the best of their business plans <clears throat> and formed relationships with those people um, managing those centres. And, and we've added our own part to the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we offer that um, to other communities around the country we we formed a a national network called the Zero Waste Network, and we you know um, yeah, advise people to go there and have a look at their um, information online as well as um, talk to the team. And we've got a, a hui each year. Um, and, um, you know last year's was um, um, by Zoom, um, but this year you know I might be in person again at Karapiro um, here in the Waikato. And um, so that's now a network of uh, nearly 120 uh, members throughout the country. So it really has turned from a number of small enterprises into actually a movement um, throughout the country. You know, probably 20 or 50 years too late, you know, in some respects. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we don't need to have um, waste at all. And um, waste is such a a new concept, and it's um, waste- doesn't exist in nature, you know, so we we're kind of um, slow learners um, about the stuff. Um, but nonetheless, it's happening and there's some changes with this um, new um, um, government, coalition government, Labour-led government, and, um, and it's around product stewardship and, and manufacturers and importers being responsible for the end of life of their product. And that's going to be a game changer in this country. We used to have an example of it um, within New Zealand, um, which was called container deposit um, systems and, or, you know, five cents back on the Coke bottle. And um, for my generation, you know, it was a game changer, you know, it was an an economic um, stepping stone um, towards your first bike or, you know, independence of some sort. Mm. And, and so we're going to get that system um, back. And it'll also be um, for tyres and electronic waste and many of the other things um, here in the country. So, yeah, I implore other communities to get involved. This is the, we've done the hard yards and, um, and we've trialed many systems. And so we can offer advice, which is, you know, kind of um, being, you know, action research and, and well tested.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And I think um, now that it comes to it, it's that it's the Community Enterprise Network Trust, isn't it? Scent, which is kind of the, the, the name of the, the underlying vehicle, I guess, because I'm quite involved um, with the social enterprise side of things. So I think Sent and Akina Foundation have collaborated around the Impact Initiative, which has been running for the last couple of years. And Um, I helped on an aspect of that, which was uh, about new legal structures for entities, which, you know, combining profit and purpose. And I think Matthew Lexon was quite involved from the SENT side on some of the community enterprise initiatives as well, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, SENT was um, an organization a few of us set up um, probably 20 years ago. And then underneath that, they they, um, SENT you know, kind of trades as the zero waste network. Um. Yeah. So yeah, Sent is the partner with Akinga for the um, social enterprise stuff. Yeah. So yeah, many thanks for for your help as well. And it's all of these conversations, a eh, about how to get ourselves organised in such a way that's useful and um, and also understood. You know, by kind of classic business as um, an alternative. And in many ways, you know, it, it kind of just reflects, you know, what the Pacific has been doing, you know, for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you would never do a, a project that was <clears throat> purely economic in the Pacific. You know, it, um, all of them had some um, um, social and, and cultural um, aspects um, to them. So, you know, I think uh, once again, you know, we've got so much to learn from the Pacific and and it's um, so neat, you know, to have the diversity and, um, and also um, the experience, you know, of, of being around for five, 6,000 years, um, you know, so much, yeah, so much we can learn from. Mm.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and I just, I guess I love the emphasis here on um, having these conversations in a way that they then become accessible to people who maybe haven't thought about it or come across it. Because I'm sure every community would be able to learn from some of these types of initiatives. Um, so hopefully, by us talking this way, there hopefully there'll be somebody listening that's um, downloading it and then forwarding it onto a friend and saying, "Ah, oh, we should explore this in our region."
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, Stephen. And you know, being intrigued as well. You know, like um, I was reading the other day. You know that um, a quarter of um, all babies born in New Zealand now, uh, Māori, a quarter, Pacific Islanders, a quarter Asian, and a quarter everything else. Mm. So we really are moving into, you know, a new population in this country. Mm. I think when, you know, the more that we realise that we're the largest South Pacific um, country, and um, our destiny really is, you know, to um, have economic links into the, you know, the Pacific is a third of the planet, you know and, and uh, you know I think it's useful to include many of the islands um, like Japan um, you know who have been you know part of um, part of that journey of the past, mm. but our future in the future you know is um, pretty exciting, I reckon, as those people um, come to govern the country um, in the future and um, where where we could go um, so yeah i'm', I'm heartened i fe- I feel. Yes, we're running out of resources, but we've got the most um, connections to the most amazing cultures.
0: Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think sometimes in the West, we, we think, well, this is the way it's done. But actually, there's so much we can learn from others. And I actually lived for five years in Japan, and I found that experience shaped me more than I even realized. And in Japan, um, they are much more appreciative, in my view, of the seasons and just the natural rhythms of life and you know on the news there they a part of the news will be a segment which says the cherry blossoms are now out in this city and next and tomorrow we expect that they'll reach this city and as a westerner you you just step back and go what is this this is the news and in the same way in the autumn you know the the changing of the colors of the leaves like the best time to view the reds and the yellows will be on this date and and go here and there's tours that take you out to see the forest and it's just a very much more I guess integrated in with nature compared to the west a little bit of that mindset I was sharing before you know like um, we're in behind we're we're here in our building and we've got the windows shut and we're at the computer but maybe there is more we can learn by getting back out and um, appreciating nature in a a different way
1: yeah for sure yep great
0: Yeah. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to anything. So if you've got um, websites or anything that we've talked about, um, what we'll do is drop those in and then people can click through to find them. Um, But Rick, I just want to say thank you for your time on the show today. It's been really interesting hearing about your life journey, and also just about what's shaped you in terms of nature, you know, right from early childhood, it sounds like was a big feature and that's kind of then reflective of where you've gone through in your life but what i really loved was the story of what you're doing now and the fact that it's not just about reuse or recycling of you know plastic or products it's also about giving people that chance to be part of something and and you know maybe giving them a second chance to to learn new skills and, and, and be contributing and be productive. So thank you so much for your time. And um, yeah, I'll be really interested to see how this develops in the coming years across the country.
1: Cool. Yeah. Love to host you sometime. If you're ever up this way, you know, be super welcome. Come, come and see us and, um, and, and come and stay. That sounds awesome. Thank you.
0: Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Rick. For me, you could probably tell I was really curious about his work out on the Chatham Islands with the Black Robins, but I also enjoyed hearing about permaculture as well as extreme zero waste. Make sure you check out their website, which is in the show notes. And don't forget there's heaps more content at theseeds.nz. There's also a Facebook page, a LinkedIn page, a Twitter account, lots of ways to connect. Until next time.